Welcome to True Paranormal, the podcast with your host, Leo Rizzuti. Every week we will explore such topics as ghosts, demons, poltergeist, haunted history, time shifts, cryptozoology, and other aspects of the paranormal through listener-submitted accounts, documentary studies, and interviews with the investigators that dedicate their lives to searching for proof of the unknown. So get a fresh cup of coffee, dim the lights, relax, and get ready for a short visit to the realm of the true paranormal. Hi guys, Leo Rizzuti here. Welcome to another episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. This week I thought that we would explore a couple of other avenues of the paranormal instead of just looking at ghosts and hauntings and things like that. The podcast is, after all, True Paranormal, and paranormal involves all kinds of things. So I thought we would look at reincarnation and doppelgangers. Hopefully you guys are excited about those subjects as I am. So go ahead and grab a cup of coffee and sit back, relax, buckle in, and get ready for this week's show. Most people are fairly familiar with the term reincarnation, which of course is the belief that you have previously lived a life, that your soul is not a new soul in your body, that it is essentially a recycled soul, that you had a life before the life that you're living now. And there are, amazingly enough, a lot of things that reincarnation would clarify for us. For example, phobias, which are, of course, irrational fears that some people have. People with phobias have fears about fairly ordinary objects or ordinary events. For example, you may have a fear of chickens, or you may have a fear of wide open spaces, or you may have a fear of ducks. Or, in the case that I know about personally, you may have a fear that fish are out to get you. It's called ichthyphobia, and it is a genuine fear. You can not handle seeing pictures of fish or videos of fish, things like that. And a lot of people would consider that irrational, but to the person suffering from it, it's definitely not irrational. It's a legitimate situation that they have to deal with. And some people say that the phobias that we have come from things that have happened to us in our past lives. For example, if you have a fear of wide open spaces, maybe you ventured into an open field and you were killed in that situation. And that would cause you to have a subconscious fear of that situation going forward. It's um, kind of a neat concept if you think about it. And the other thing that people point to is nightmares. And it's kind of falls into the same category where you have past life memories and those past life memories are coming back to you in the form of nightmares. If you were, let's say, in that situation where you were attacked in a field, you would have a nightmare where you're walking into a field and you're attacked. And it's not necessarily a figment of your imagination as much as it is a memory that you've had. So that's one thing that a lot of people will point to that say, well, reincarnation can actually explain why these things happen. Where they're kind of inexplicable otherwise. Another area that people will point to reincarnation as a valid explanation for is a kind of an odd one is spontaneous knowledge and especially knowledge of places and events that people have never been to. We find this most often in the cases of children where they will legitimately 
remember or understand the inner workings of machines that they've never seen. They can describe locations that they've never been to. They can describe all kinds of things that they have obviously had no knowledge of in the past, which is kind of an odd situation unless you consider that possibly they've lived a past life and they've experienced these things. If you have someone who in a past life, for example, was an engineer, then maybe they would understand how a engine would work if they helped to design engines in their past life. Just kind of putting that out there as an example, but it's one of those things, again, that folks will point to. And kind of hand in hand with that is the phenomenon of children spontaneously speaking other languages. I have witnessed and I have heard of situations where children have been randomly just talking about whatever kids talk about and they will speak German when they've never heard German before or they will speak French or they will speak Algonquin or whatever language will come up to mind but it's amazing because in almost every one of these cases there is no base for knowledge with those. I know of a case specifically where a child was sitting in a restaurant and she was speaking in English, and all of a sudden, she said, I am das Wunderkind, which, of course, is the, the, the wonder child. So the speaking of different languages is definitely something that we can not really explain readily unless, of course, you take into account the fact that maybe you have lived a past life, and that could be evidence of it. There's also some physical attributes that a lot of people consider evidence of past lives or evidence of reincarnation. The one that a lot of people are familiar with that folks point out are, of course, birthmarks. Now, some people say that birthmarks are an indication of this is how you were killed or this is the manner in which you died in your past life. For example, if you have a birthmark in the center of your chest, Maybe you were shot there, or maybe you had heart surgery or something like that. If you have a birthmark on your wrist, maybe you committed suicide. Maybe you had an injury there when you were living your past life, and that scarring carries over into the next life, which is kind of a neat thought uh, in that it's not only the spiritual aspect of it, but the physical aspect of it that is affected. We also look at chronic illnesses as a thing that people point to. There have been cases where folks that have done past life regression, which I'm not a big fan of. There's a lot of things that could go wrong with past life regression. There's a lot of feeding in information that we have found out that happens. But to the point that some folks consider it valid, we have found that folks that have chronic back problems or chronic knee problems or things like that, when they do past life regression, they find out that they were speared in the back or they were in a battle and their leg was attacked or something like that. And it tends to confirm what they already believe. The most striking thing that we see is physical appearance, where we have had situations where people have said that they remember, for example, Civil War battles. And I'm thinking of a specific case where A gentleman said that he remembered Civil War battles, he remembered regiments, he remembered actual military tactics, and he thought he had lived a past life as a Civil War general. And lo and behold, he looked just like the specific Civil War general that he was considering, down to facial scars and everything, which is beyond bizarre if you think about that for too long. 
The last thing that they look at is, and this is a little more amorphous, but they look at handwriting, where somebody's handwriting will mimic or will mirror the person that they've had a past life experience with. So that's something that I don't hear a whole lot of people pointing to as evidence, but is something that if you are a believer in reincarnation and you are a believer in past lives, that you can point to and say, hey, this person's handwriting looks exactly like the person that they were beforehand. So that's kind of a neat aspect of it. Now we're going to have a look at a couple of very well documented cases of individuals that have been reported as being reincarnated. And these are not just anecdotal stories. These are very heavily documented and very heavily verified instances where the only valid explanation is either that it's a massive hoax, which would involve dozens and dozens and dozens of people, included the folks that are investigating the claims, or that reincarnation is real. Here we go. Our first story is the story of Shanti Devi. On January 18, 1902, a daughter was born to a family, residents of Mathura, India. Her name was Lukdi. When Lukdi was 10, a marriage was arranged with a man named Kedarnath Chab, a shopkeeper in the same village. After puberty, Lukdi became pregnant for the first time, but her child was stillborn following a cesarean section. During her second pregnancy, Kedarnath took her to the government hospital at Agra where a son was born, again through a cesarean. There were some complications, however, and several days later, on October 4th, Ludi's condition deteriorated, and she died at 10 a.m. One year, 10 months, and 7 days after Ludi's death, on December 11, 1926, a beautiful daughter was born to Babu Rang Bahadur Mathur of Shawala Mahula, a small locality of Delhi. The girl was named Shanti Devi. Shanti was unusually quiet and hardly spoke until she was four years old. When she started talking, she surprised her family by telling them, This is not my real home. I have a husband and a son in Mathura. I must return home. Shanti said that her husband was in Mathura where he owned a cloth shop and they had a son. She called herself Shabin, Shab's wife. The parents considered it a child's fantasy and took no notice. They got worried, however, when she talked repeatedly about it and, over time, narrated a number of incidents connected with her life in Mathura with her husband. On occasions at meals, Shanti would say, In my house in Mathura, I ate different kinds of sweets. Sometimes when her mother was dressing her, she would tell what kind of dresses she had used to wear. Curiously, she mentioned three distinctive features about her husband. He was fair-skinned, he had a big wart on his left cheek, and he wore reading glasses. She also mentioned that her husband's shop was located in front of Dewardish Temple. This strange talk continued. By this time, Shanti was a six-year-old, and her parents were perplexed and worried. Shanti even gave a detailed account of her death following childbirth. They consulted their family physician, who was amazed at how this little girl correctly described so many details of the complicated surgical procedures she claimed to have endured. As Shanti grew older, she insisted that her parents take her to Bathura. All this time, however, she never mentioned her husband's name. 
It is customary in India that wives do not speak the names of their husbands. Even when specifically asked, Shanti would only blush and say, I will recognize him if I am taken there. Her parents thought their daughter was mentally ill and tried everything to discourage her strange talk. But Shanti continued to talk about her other family and gave a specific address and more details about her previous home, her husband, and his family. Eventually, a teacher in Ramjas High School in Delhi told Shanti that if she told him her husband's name, he would take her to Mathura. Convinced, she whispered his name into his ear, Kedarath Chubb. The teacher told her that he would arrange for the trip to Mathura after he had made some inquiries. He wrote a letter to Kedarath Chubb detailing all that Shanti had said and invited him to visit Delhi. Amazingly, the teacher received a quick reply from Kedarnath, admitting that his young wife, Lugdi, had recently passed away. Even more amazing was all the details that Shanti had described about her old house and members of her previous family were all true. Shanti's story spread all over India through the media. Many intellectuals became interested in it. When the famous teacher and pacifist Mahatma Gandhi heard about it, he personally talked to Shanti and then requested her to stay in his ashram. Gandhi instigated a committee to investigate and report on the claims the little girl was making. Soon, a committee of 15 prominent people, including politicians, national leaders, and members from the media, was formed and they persuaded Shanti's parents to allow her to accompany them to Mathura. Upon arriving at Mathura by train, Shanti, on her own, quickly led them straight to her previous home. She correctly described what it had looked like years earlier, before its recent refurbishing. As a test to mislead Shanti, Kajmal introduced Kedarnath as his elder brother. Shanti blushed and stood on one side. Someone asked why she was blushing in front of her husband's elder brother. Shanti said, No, he is not my husband's brother. He is my husband himself. Then she addressed her mother. Didn't I tell you that he is fair, and he has a wart on the left cheek near his ear? She then asked her mother to prepare meals for the guests. When her mother asked what she should prepare, she said that she was fond of stuffed potato paranthas and pumpkin curry. Ketterneth was speechless, as these were his favorite meals. He asked whether she could tell them anything unusual to help him accept that this was really his former wife. Shanti replied, Yes, there is a well in the courtyard of our house where I used to take my bath. She was also able to relate extremely intimate information, such as extramarital affairs of family members that no one outside the family could possibly have known. But it wasn't enough to convince Ketterneth. He needed something really private that only his dead wife would know. Apparently, Lugdi had suffered from painful arthritis, making it very difficult for her to move. This presented problems when the couple tried to have sex, but Lugdi had found a way to move that enabled her to have relations with her husband. This was an extremely private matter, yet Shanti was able to describe this in intimate detail. That convinced him. So there you go, the story of Shanti Devi. The neat thing about her specific account is that her recollections and her memories continue on well into childhood. A lot of times with reincarnation cases, you see the past memories 
start off when kids are very, very young, toddlers, and they might carry into preschool age, but eventually as the child gets older, those memories tend to fade and they talk less and less about it, which says something about the very nature potentially of reincarnation, that our new personalities take over our old personalities. But in this case, it continued on well into her childhood and it's amazing the longevity of her specific case, which is why it was such an interest to me. A very well-documented case, but also one that kind of shows that those memories don't necessarily need to fade. Our next story is the strange case of James Leniger, and this is potentially the best documented case of reincarnation that we have seen coming out of America. A couple of things about that. First off, the fact that it's an American story instead of an Indian story means I'm not going to have a lot of problems with names and things like that. But outside of that, the fact is that reincarnation is not necessarily a cultural touchstone in America. And for it to pop up here means that there must be something to it. And again, the documentation, just like the story with Shanti, is really, really strong and to the point where the only legitimate explanation is either hoax or reincarnation is real, depending on how you want to look at it. So here we go. James Linegar was not yet two years old when he began to have terrible nightmares. His parents knew he would outgrow them, but his screams frightened them. When they would come to his bedside, they often found him on his back, kicking his legs in the air and thrashing his arms, as if he were trying to escape from an imaginary box. He would also yell some garbled words that his parents could not understand. When he was three, his mom heard the words more clearly. Airplane crash. On fire. Little man can't get out. James had played with toy airplanes, but he had never fantasized about them crashing or burning. He wasn't exposed to war movies on television or in the cinema. His parents were puzzled. The boy's nightmares seemed to have started shortly after his father took him to visit a Dallas flight museum containing some vintage aircraft when the boy was just 18 months old. But why? As his fascination with airplanes continued, so did his nightmares. His parents brought him more toy model planes to play with, thinking he would soon find other interests. They noticed that when he approached his toy sit-down airplane, he would perform a walk-around inspection before he got in just like a real pilot. Once his mother gave him a model with what appeared to be a bomb on the underside. When she pointed this out to her son, he immediately corrected her, telling her it was a drop tank. His mother, Andrea, later stated, I've never heard of a drop tank. I don't know what a drop tank was. When James was a little more than three years old, his parents decided to take him to a therapist who specialized in treating troubled children. Almost immediately, his nightmares started to diminish. James was encouraged to talk about the things he remembered just before bedtime, when he was relaxed and sleepy. It was then that his surprising story started to be revealed. Among the amazing things little James told his parents was that he was a pilot and flew a Corsair airplane. According to James, they used to get flat tires all the time. He also recalled being assigned to a ship called Natoma and that he had been shot down by the Japanese in the Battle of Iwo Jima. He further recalled that he had served with a buddy named Jack Larson. All of this was too much for his parents to comprehend, so they decided to see if his story had any factual basis. 
Almost immediately, James's father, Bruce, found that a Corsair was indeed a type of airplane used in the Pacific during World War II, and that it did have a reputation for blowing tires when it landed hard. He later found the record of a small aircraft carrier, Natoma Bay, that was in the Battle of Iwo Jima. But the most remarkable fact was that there was a pilot named Jack Larson who served on the Natoma Bay. In fact, Larson was still alive and living in nearby Arkansas. About this time, James began to draw pictures of his airplane and of being shot down. The fact that he was both drawing and talking about these memories seemed to eliminate his nightmares. Bruce quickly contacted Jack Larson and was informed that the only pilot shot down from the crew of the Natoma Bay was named James M. Houston Jr., who had received a direct hit and crashed in a ball of fire. Bruce says it was then that he believed his son had a past life in which he was the same James M. Houston Jr. His father stated he came back because he wasn't finished with something. The Lenigers wrote a letter to Houston's sister, Anne Barron, about their little boy. Now she believes it as well. In all, there have been over 50 distinct memories that have been validated in this exceptional case of reincarnation. As Miss Barron herself later said, the child was so convincing in coming up with all the things that there is no way in the world that he could have known. So there you go, folks, the incredible story of James Lineger. It is very noteworthy to point out that, yes, he could have gotten knowledge of planes, even at 18 months old, from his father taking him to an air museum. But then that begs the question of how did he know the other pilot's name? How did he know the name of the aircraft carrier? How did he know that there was a plane that had been shot down and act through the situation where it was only that plane, that single incident that happened there? Very intriguing stuff and the kind of items that make you really wonder, do we know what's going on with reincarnation? Okay, let's move away from the world of reincarnation and step into the world of doppelgangers. This is a subject that I have been fascinated with for most of my adult life. It's a thing that we don't talk a whole lot about, even though we're fairly familiar with it in our culture. Doppelgangers, of course, are a phenomenon where you are seeing two of the same person, often in different locations, but sometimes not so much in different locations, sometimes in the same locations. Although we'll concentrate on doppelgangers specifically, there are other categories of this type of phenomenon. Although Today, doppelganger kind of tends to be the term used to cover most cases. There are things called doubles, which are reports of seeing the same person in two different places at the same time, but the locations are sometimes distance apart. Many of those cases have been verified by more than one person. There's a phenomenon called bilocation, and this is a doppelganger case where two versions of one person are seen by groups of people at the same time. They can also occur, in fact, they usually occur in close proximity to each other. However, the person and their ghost or their double tend to carry out different actions from each other. What is really interesting about these cases is that both versions of the person in question seem to be much weaker in appearance than the whole living person would normally be. And then there's a thing called vartigers. And this is kind of similar to doubles, but the ghostly double visits a location before the real person. 
In some very odd cases, the vartiger of a person has sometimes visited a location many times before the real physical person. When the real person finally gets to this particular destination, they are recognized immediately, but the real person has no recollection of visiting the place before. And an odd note about vartigers is that this is a phenomenon that is so common in the Netherlands that it's not even thought of as a phenomenon. It's just thought of as a way of life, which is kind of neat if you think about it. There's been a couple of really intriguing cases of doppelgangers, and we're going to have a look at one of them, probably the best known and best documented one that I can think of, and that is the case of Emily Seiji. One of the most documented cases of a doppelganger is the case of Emily Seiji, a French woman who had lost 18 jobs in 16 years because of her evil twin. Emily had taken a job at an exclusive school for the Daughters of Nobility, where she became very popular with the students. Before long, however, rumors began to circulate that Emily could be in two places at the same time. Students claimed that during a French lesson, Emily had been in the front of the class writing a lesson on the blackboard. With her back towards the children, an exact duplicate of her appeared about three feet from her. Mimicking her every move, the doppelganger appeared as an exact twin, dress and all, except the doppelganger's writing movements on the board produced no text because there was no chalk in her hand. Students also told stories of Emily's doppelganger roaming the school halls while Emily was in her room, fast asleep. In another instance, witnessed by nearly 50 people, the students were intently working on their sewing class while another teacher sat at the front of the room reading a book. Outside the window, the students could see Emily working in the garden. The supervising teacher stood up and left the room. Seconds later, Emily walked in and sat down in the empty chair. Students thought nothing of it until one gasped and pointed out the window where Emily was still working diligently in the garden. Two of the students stood and approached the doppelganger and, being quite brave, reached out and touched it. They said it looked just like Emily Seiji in all aspects, except when they ran their hands through the entity, they said it felt empty, like the stuff cobwebs are made of. Later, Emily Seiji told school officials that she indeed had been outside picking flowers in the garden. She had not seen the doppelganger. In fact, Emily never once saw her twin, but had in fact wished to herself that she was in the classroom supervising the sewing class. School officials noted in their documentation that each time the doppelganger appeared to them, the real Emily appeared lethargic and listless. Parents complained about the ghost, and eventually Emily was summarily dismissed from her job. So there you go, the case of Emily Seiji, and it is a classic case. It is one of the oddest, simply because of the aspect of how many witnesses there were to it and the touching of the doppelganger. It's the only case I can think of where a doppelganger has actually been touched. And to think that when you put your hand on the doppelganger, that there essentially was nothing there kind of gives credence to a couple of different theories that we're going to go over here in a second as to what doppelgangers are and what causes them. Although not considered by everyone to bring bad luck, doppelgangers usually are a sign or a portent of bad luck to a lot of people. 
doppelgangers nevertheless can give off anything from an unpleasant vibe to actual malevolence. Other doppelgangers just kind of seem like normal people with nothing apparently unusual about them. One of the most interesting aspects of some doppelgangers is the fact that they tend to keep their faces hidden. This is not always the case, but in a large number the face is obscured by, for example, hair or by the doppelganger only being observed from the side or the back so that the face remains obscure. I know I am familiar with some cases of doppelgangers where people have forced themselves to look at the doppelganger in the face and sometimes they have reported that there is no facial features there at all, which is creepy beyond all reasoning. There is sometimes no conversation from the doppelganger, but there have been cases where people have reported that they have talked with the doppelganger, believing it to be the actual person. What tends to happen is that the doppelganger often disappears from a location that is difficult to exit without being seen by at least one person. Later, either the real person turns up at the location, bewildered to discover that people believe that they've already been there, or it is later verified by other witnesses that the real person hadn't left their house, bed, or wherever and were never in the location mentioned. There have been a few cases where the doppelganger moved in an odd way. A very rapid movement is often described that looks weird to onlookers. In other cases, they just move in an ordinary fashion. People sometimes see the doppelganger in addition, as we already mentioned, to the physical other half. And that, again, is the case with Emily Sagey, where she was there on the chalkboard writing and her doppelganger appeared just feet from her. In other cases, the physical person never sees their own doppelganger and the events are witnessed just by others. And again, this was the case with Emily Sagey. She never actually witnessed her twin, but everybody else around her did. On occasion, the doppelganger seems to mimic the same movements as the physical person, which, again, was the case in Emily Sagey, but then, at other times, the doppelganger is performing different activities. For example, with Emily, in her case, she was down in the garden, and her doppelganger was sitting up in the classroom where, coincidentally, Emily wanted to be. There are quite a few explanations and theories for what doppelgangers are and what causes them, uh, ranging from the most mundane to some fantastical, amazing theories. Uh, one of the more mundane ones is, of course, hallucinations. People have theorized that doppelgangers are no more than people hallucinating and imagining that they're seeing things. Of course, when you get into large crowds that see a person, especially in cases where people are in one group all together and everybody witnesses the same thing, it's kind of tough to believe that they're all hallucinating the same exact thing at the same exact time. But I suppose it could happen. So it's a theory pretty valid. A more valid theory to me is, of course, the one that is mistaken identity. There have been, of course, documented cases where folks have had twins and relatives that have lived in their area that they didn't know about, where folks have gotten separated from adoption, things like that. And there have been a couple documented cases where these people have thought at first it was doppelgangers and come to find out, no, they just actually have a a twin, a twin brother or twin sister that walks around in the same neighborhood as them, which is kind of a neat thing to have happen. But until you find out that it's kind of creepy to think that there's another version of you just walking around doing whatever it wants to do. There are, of course, instances where folks just look like other people. We have people who are presidential imitators or people who imitate celebrities, things like that. 
that just naturally look like the other person. So, of course, there are instances of doppelgangers where people are just simply mistaken identity. You look just like Nick Cage. Well, it's probably not Nick Cage's doppelganger. It might just be that you have a really weird-looking face. Of course, there's a theory that doppelgangers are caused by astral projection, which is an odd thought because most folks, when you do astral projection, it takes quite a bit of concentration. And it's not the kind of thing that just randomly happens, but it is a legitimate theory because it does fit the mold of if you're projecting your spirit self outside of your body, perhaps it manifests itself just like in a haunting and it takes some kind of form and it's visible to other people. So there is that aspect of it that we can't really explain, but it's as legitimate as any other theory. One last theory about doppelgangers is, of course, that it is a warp or a loop in time in the space-time continuum. And this tends to be the theory that I buy into a lot, simply because it fits a lot of the criteria of most of the documented doppelganger cases. If you think about the Emily case, the fact that she was up at the blackboard and writing, and then her doppelganger appeared and was doing the same exact motions as her, but of course without chalk, that lends itself to think that what it's doing is time is kind of just repeating itself. I uh, don't know if that's a psychic phenomenon. don't know if that's a location phenomenon. The thought that in the Netherlands, doppelgangers are really, really prevalent kind of lends itself to thinking that it is a location incident. But the fact that, for example, with Emily, she had this happen in multiple locations tends to point to the fact that it's psychic. So maybe it's a combination of the two. But at any rate, it explains a lot of the actions of doppelgangers where you have people see doppelgangers going through a motion that they've seen before. Or if in the Netherlands, for example, a lot of times you'll have people say, well, I know my husband's coming home because I just saw his doppelganger come through the room. And sure enough, five minutes later, the husband's home. It kind of lends itself to the space-time continuum theory. Just my kind of little pet theory that's out there. But um, a lot of people do talk about that as being a potential explanation for it. At any rate, if you've got your own theories or your own ideas about what doppelgangers are, or if you'd really like to support one theory or another, let us know in the comments. We'd love to hear from you guys as to what you think is going on with this. Again, it's an area that I've been really fascinated with for years, and I just love hearing people talk about it and love learning new things about it. Well, guys, that's going to do it for this week's episode of True Paranormal, the podcast like to thank you guys for joining us this weekend every week for that matter i'm really excited about the direction this show is taking and i'm really excited that you guys are choosing to sit down and share some time with us every single week remember that if you'd like to share your story with us just check us out on facebook at true paranormal the podcast and hit that like button and there's a message button there and there's a email button there and just shoot us one of your stories and let us know about it. We'll be glad to share it on one of our future broadcasts. If you're not on Facebook, just send it to us at trueparanormalpodcast at gmail.com. That's trueparanormalpodcast at gmail.com. And again, we'd be glad to share your story on one of our future broadcasts. Also, if you guys listen to us on iTunes, be sure to give us a rating and a review. We'd love to get some feedback from you guys and let us know how we're doing. Be sure to join us next week and 
every week when we continue to explore other areas of the paranormal and we're also going to get into doing of course some more ghost stories i know that's the fan favorite so we're going to just keep on doing those as long as we can in the meantime my name is leo rizzuti thank you guys for joining us and join us next week for another episode of true paranormal the podcast <laughs>